Hey there, fellow Trekkers. This is Matt coming at you here. Just a quick programming note before we hit Wolf in the Fold, which you know you're going to want to hear all about because there's belly dancing. Oh boy, belly dancing on Star Trek. We also got a nice murder mystery going on and some Red Jack. What's Red Jack? Well, if you don't know, listen into the episode and find out. But before we do, quick programming note, as I said, we're going to be hitting Star Trek Discovery starting next week. Next week, we're going to be hitting the four short treks that they did over the last few months. And then the following week, starting with episode one of season two of Discovery, which we're really excited about because we've got, uh, well, Pike, obviously. We got some Spock going on in this season. And uh, also, our uh, one of our favorite captains comes back as a part of Section 31. How exciting is that going to be? So I think it's going to be a really good season. I'm excited. I hope you'll all follow us on our path of discovery as we do that. However, if discovery is not your thing or you decide you don't want to spend another $5.99 to watch Star Trek, that's fine. That's fine. After the end of uh, Star Trek... Discovery, we will get back to our our regular scheduled programming with the Changeling, but I encourage you all to watch Discovery if you haven't. It's really great. All of our archives are listed from all of the uh, Season 1 episodes, so I encourage you to go back and find those. Wherever you found this, you'll find that. iTunes, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher. They're all there. You can find them. Go for it. And with that, I bring you the belly dancing goodness of Wolf in the Fold. about the 60s that made belly dancing a big thing you see it in uh from russia with love you see it in uh, uh a couple of other bond films yeah you see it here in star trek belly dancing it's a big thing in the 60s i don't understand it. <laughs> but hey here we are for another episode of the brothers trek about my name is matt and as always, uh, sitting in Houston is my brother Ken. Say hello, Ken. Hailing frequencies are open. They sure are. And here we are, hailing out to the rest of everybody, talking this week about The Wolf in the Fold, an episode that does feature belly dancing, as well as a surprise appearance by none other than Jack the Ripper. And we, we need the saw that coming. <laughs> well, right, he's, oh, piglet. No. he's Piglet. Yes, he's Piglet. That is so true as well. Well, uh, hey, we got a lot to talk about this week, so I'm going to dive right in talking about some of this cool behind-the-scenes uh, <clears throat> behind stuff. This episode was written by Robert Block. You might remember he wrote Little Girls Are Made Of. He wrote just the most recently seen Cat's Paw. This is his uh, third script for Star Trek. When this idea was originally pitched and when it was originally written in the first couple of drafts, they had Jack the Ripper in the computer. And then it was a lot of Kirk fighting the computer, which not only have we already seen in the Landrew episode, 
but something else that we will not only see in the next episode, but even a few more episodes down the road as well. Kirk uh, thinking some sort of uh, computer brain. In the original uh, version of this uh, script, it was also Sulu, not Scotty, who decided or who was the one caught up in the uh, the big mystery. I think that would have taken on a uh, different uh, a different thing, don't you think? In this episode, mm-hmm. indeed, it was Robert Justman who uh, was the one who decided to change it from uh, Sulu to Scotty. It didn't happen for uh, uh, the se- until the second draft, but he had been kind of pushing for it all along. He just uh, really liked Jimmy Doohan and really liked his acting and thought he might be a better choice than uh, uh, he wrote. It's a better chance at dramatics, <laughs> which I think is funny. And this uh, I, I, first trip. I think the key question comes down to because the way the script operates, the drama is highest, the more beloved the character is. Mm-hmm. Right. So the question is, you know, you look you look around your cast and go, well, who's your most beloved character? It's probably the doctor. But then after the doctor, it's probably Scotty. Yeah, definitely a better choice. It'd be. I feel like we've seen a couple episodes like that with Bones. So yeah. possibly choosing him doesn't feel quite quite right. But yeah, that would also be a, a really good choice for this episode. Yeah, you don't want to see the doctor accused of murder. That would be upsetting. Exactly. In this first draft, we've got Act 4. It's involved in this lengthy battle of wills between Kirk and the ship's computer. Uh, Captain using logic to defeat the entity. Also in that original draft, which we've seen before, Block had the onboard computer ended up exploding, which again, we've seen a couple of times, but uh, also would uh, probably cause some damage to the ship. There'd probably be a couple of uh, running things that wouldn't uh, be working as well without the uh, ship computer working. You know, another reason to go for Scotty is that we just don't know him quite as well as McCoy. We, mm-hmm. we know McCoy too well to go... Could he have done it? Right away, you'd be like, oh, well, something's wrong with McCoy. Yeah. You know, he's there's this isn't the real McCoy. <laughs> but with Scott, you're not exactly quite sure. Because we just don't know him as well as we know McCoy. Yeah, maybe Bones would have been too... I had another word in my head, and then it just went, Bleh. but deep. Well known is what I was gonna say. To Too repeat. familiar to the to the yeah, audience. Familiar. Yeah. That was the word. So uh, Stan Robertson at NBC, he really liked this episode. Of course, as always, he likes episodes that take place on other planets, and uh, you know, aliens or or you know, cult different cultures uh, dealing with our crew and what that's like. Uh, but he did go on to say that we must play this this story as a mystery involving our crewmen from the Enterprise as our prime suspect until uh, as late as possible possibly the tag of the third act. It would be more feasible from a practical standpoint to utilize Mr. Scott as our, as our suspect rather than Sulu. So here again, we get uh, Stan Robertson handing off some notes that you're like, okay, yeah, I can get behind those notes. They're uh, definitely going to work for the better. So the way Scott plays it, or the way James Doohan plays it, is with a lot of vulnerability. And I think that Sulu could have brought that same vulnerability, perhaps even slightly more vulnerability. Uh-huh. You know, being kind of more of a junior officer, more like, please, Captain, save me, rather than uh, Mr. Scott, who was also really like, 
I don't know what's going on. I'm, I'm helpless in this situation. Yeah. These are the components of how this works out that I'm kind of thinking through as you discuss it. Yeah, all those important uh, story details that we, uh, we like to discuss here. Uh, Gene Roddenberry also felt that none of our running characters, including Kirk, showed enough depth in, uh, in emotion, you know? They should start to feel the doubt. Apparently in the first writing of it, you know, everybody was kind of like, well, we know Scott didn't do it. Let's move on, you know? So he's like, uh, let's, really, let's really dig in and find out if they really feel like Scott did it or not. And maybe there is doubt. So uh, that was another Roddenberry thing. Uh, not surprisingly, it was also Gene Roddenberry who came up with the idea of making the planet so foreign to us that it would uh, appear a little more sci-fi-y to describe it, I guess. It is not in any way exotic or foreign. It feels like another country. <laughs> Fair right? enough. So I think there are huge problems with Edward Said's theory of Orientalism. But when I, when I first saw this, oh, like, we're on another planet, so they do something strange and foreign, like belly dancing. Belly thought, dancing! Here is a touch of the Orientalism. Orientalism yeah. involved lots of things that aren't in, in play here, and I think the theory is mostly deeper. But the idea that, that something like strange and foreign is going to look like Asia. Uh, yeah, well, West Asia strikes yeah. me as kind of odd. You know, it would have been easier, you know, to, like, they do that sometimes in the next generation. Well, this planet was settled by the Irish. Or this planet was settled by, you know, there's a cultural thing that explains why this is, you know, a visit to, to bonnie old Ireland, right? Or yeah. I guess that would be Scotland, right? Uh, but, you know, we're visiting the Celtic fringe. You know, so this could have been a planet that was settled by, and you named some, you know, great Al-Harabi, you know, the you know, great uh, uh, 22nd century, you know, leader of the United Arab Republic or something. And we're like, oh, okay. We actually are visiting the Middle East in this episode because it's colonized. By, but instead, there's no explanation. We kind of get the sense that they're like aliens without, you know, the handy 90s, you know, advantage of getting a nose prosthetic to go, oh, yeah, they're aliens. <laughs> but so apparently true. they have psychic powers, so they must be aliens, even though nobody looks like aliens. It's hard to figure. All, all we know is that they're on some kind of pleasure planet. There's no clear, are they, I still don't know if they're aliens or not. Right, yeah, exactly. Transplants from Earth. Yeah, I mean, they could be in like New Damascus. Yeah. Part of the reason of his uh, reason uh, for doing this was because he felt that the act, act one of the original script was a little bit slow, but uh, it would also come uh, after a second trap two. We should make this this hedonistic world, you know? So really? Roddenberry, so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Roddenberry. Yeah, in fact, I've got a quote from him here. Oh, I love it. Damn. Put on my glasses. He says, Let's establish that the nature of the place keeps women eternally young, beautiful, and remarkably busty. Perhaps hormones work better here. At any rate, let's cast and clothe in that direction with a vengeance. 
this place is remarkably peaceful because the women screw a lot. <laughs> Isn't that logical? Oh or if we can't be logical, let's at least be provocative. Ed oh Roddenberry there. Yeah. Great bird. Amazing. Fontana then, DC Fontana, of course, our favorite. She writes to Kuhn saying, you know, hey, this uh, this script needs a lot more work. We need to uh, get some restructuring. And hey, I don't think that there's enough of Spock in this episode. We need to put a little more Spock. Remember how beloved he is. But what Fontana didn't know is that Gene Kuhn was trying to minim minimize the use of Spock in this episode because not only had a week earlier the Emmy nominations happened and Nimoy, as we know, got the nomination and Shatner didn't, but also they just circulated the, the draft for uh, the Doomsday Machine, which had all this stuff with Spock being really cool and doing fun stuff, and they couldn't just change the script and give that to Kirk. So Kirk or so Spock had already looked super cool in this previous episode. So they were like, hey, we need to get the focus back on our hero, Mr. Shatner. And not only that, but hey, we saw the licking he took at the Emmy. So uh, let's just do our best, you know, to uh, make sure that everyone on board was was going to make this a very Kirk-centric episode. So Spock had to uh, wait until Act 3 to show up. Well, I mean, he, he does show up kind of in the middle of the episode. But all he really does is say... Wouldn't it be better served to get Mr. Scott back on board the Enterprise? And Kirk's like, oh, we have to let the local laws take their take their place. So we get a little bit of, he's on the he's on the ship when every when all the action's on the planet. Which makes logical sense, right? I mean, why would you have Kirk, Mr. Scott, and Spock running around down on Murder Planet? <laughs> right. It makes more sense that that Spock would be in command, kind of where he normally should be if Kirk is running around in danger. Unlike at the uh, end of the show, when Kirk's like, well, hey, I know everybody's all hopped up on the, uh, the heebie-jeebies, but uh, why don't you come down with me to the planet, because I don't want to go alone. <laughs> nah, it's fine. We'll just let the inmates run the asylum for a while. That's cool. Well, he does so, realize uh, that either it's a bad idea or Spock realizes that it's a bad idea and gives him the look. Yeah, exactly. We'll just assume that's the way it happened. So uh, this episode was directed by Joseph Pidney. He uh, only had five days to prepare this episode since uh, the last episode was being shot in only five days. So uh, he got a running on it real quick. He was the one who cast uh, John Fielder as Mr. Hengist, right? Uh uh, I, you know, he's one of those character actors who I've seen in like a million things, but couldn't tell you what any of them were. You know, he's just one of those guys. I'm like, yeah, I know that guy from that thing, <laughs> but couldn't name any of them. He was the guy who murdered his wife with a, a bucket full of uh, pills in Colombo. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, he had been on the Twilight Zone at this point. He had been on Get Smart. He was also one of the jurors in the movie The Twelve Angry Men. So that's a pretty prominent role. Uh, one thing that you might all remember him from. He was also uh, one of the regular poker buddies on the uh, in the Odd Couple movie, and then he went to the Odd Couple series as well. So he was one of the regular poker buddies on both. He was also one of uh, Bob Newhart's patients on the Bob Newhart show back in That's the day. That's what I as well. remember him most from. Yes, 
that could be as well. And uh, as you mentioned, he was also the voice of Piglet from 1968 until his death in 2005. So that's pretty cool. Joseph Pebney really liked him because uh, he felt like with his look, with his voice and all of that stuff that few people would ever suspect that he was the actual uh, murderer, except for me, but we'll get there. <laughs> Charles McCauley here, he was the guy who played Jairus, right? The leader, the prefect of the planet, but he had already been in Star Trek already. Do you know who he played? I have no idea. He was Landru. Oh. Yeah, I mean, you, you, how could you tell? First of yeah. all, because it was like such a little part. But they also did his hair crazy and stuff. So we also got uh, John Winston here back playing Lieutenant Kyle as the uh, transporter chief. So uh, he got to have some fun in this episode. He said that uh, Star Trek was almost a mixture of comedy all the time. It was Shatner, because he was so clever with it all, who gave it credibility. He was the star. He was the sun and the rest of the cast being the rest of the planets just circulated around him. So <laughs> I thought that's pretty funny. <clears throat> now, equally funny, we've got uh, Tanya Lemony here. She was the one who was the first victim, the belly dancer we see at the beginning of the episode. She had been working already uh, uh, on and off the screen, but she was in an unsold pilot of a television show called Alexander the Great. It was an un unpicked up episode. And now, I don't know if you knew this, but I didn't until I read this episode. But the star of that show, Alexander the Great, was none other than William Shatner. Well, my goodness. Oh, that... Yeah, right? So here they are working together on this. Uh, she remembers seeing him on set on Alexander the Great and thinking, oh, my God, who is this Greek god, she says. And everyone's like, oh, that's William Shatner. And she's like, I was like 16, year 16 years old. And as we were filming, he just kept looking at me and smiling. And then he finally came up and up and whispered to me in this very, 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 very sexy voice saying uh, that he wants to take me out and that he wants to see me. And uh, I kept thinking to myself, uh, oh yeah, oh yeah, I want to go out with him. <laughs> so that was funny. Uh, but since Shatter was married at the time, that just never happened. Jimmy Dewan also uh, brings up this point. So uh, this has been brought up before. I can't remember if we've talked about it, but uh, Jimmy Dewan is missing a finger. He was very good about hiding it. It was this one right here, right? He doesn't have this one. And he was very good at hiding it. There are lots of different episodes where he, you'll see he's uh, either standing with one hand holding over his other hand or he's got uh, something else hiding it. There was one, uh, one scene in the last episode where he, when he was, you know, the captain. And he, uh, the woman there, and handed him, a, uh, handed him one of the clipboard things. And so he kept his hand under the clipboard. And then when he goes to hand, hand it back to her, he keeps his hand underneath until the last second and then makes it go away. So there are all these little things that they did to hide the fact that uh, Jimmy Dewan had no finger, which like, I, I think, why is that even a big deal? Like he's an engineer, he could have lost that in any kind of like crazy gear thing that happened, you know, uh, somewhere dealing with the antimatter. And you just have some kind of explanation like the figure wasn't recoverable for the medical people to like yeah. do whatever they needed to do. But he in did fact, say, you know, what would be fun is, is like you have that in an episode. Yeah, there you go. It's like, you know, in episode 27, he suffers this, this injury. That would have been great. And, and afterwards, he becomes murderous towards women. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so he goes to, and he puts his hand on the thing for when they're in the trial, right? He's like doing the, the lie detector thing. 
and uh, they actually go for a close-up of his hand sitting on the thing. Well, that wasn't him. That was none other than our buddy uh, Eddie Paskey. Eddie Paskey was his uh, stunt hand. Uh, he said that I was always Jimmy's hand double. He was missing a finger, and any time he would run the controls of the transporter room or something like that, those were actually my hands and not his. So there you go. Uh, Duhin said this, Directive, uh, Director Joseph Pebney had no desire to risk throwing a viewer mentally out of the scene with a startling, hey, look, Scotty's missing a finger. <laughs> so it's kind of funny that he could uh, like joke around about it. Tanya Lemony goes on to tell a story about how you were not supposed to show your belly button on TV during uh, during uh, this time. True. It... And I, I noticed it because, of course, I do. Jeannie was unable to. Right. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So uh, they kept trying to like put like a flower or put something else in it that would stay, but it kept popping out because she kept gyrating her hips so much that whatever it was kept uh, popping out. And she's like, it sucked because it really slowed down like the filming process. But sure enough, they had to do it. Also, it was written in this episode that they were going to start somewhere on the body of the belly dancer and then zoom out and then we'd see where we were and we'd see our regular cast members. This is one of the uh, few of like four or five episodes that doesn't have the starting, our regular starting shot with the uh, Enterprise going by a planet. Which it turns out Stan Robertson didn't like at all because he felt that it was just too same all the time to start into that with that episode. And he loved kind of uh, breaking it up. establishing shot. Well, right. But yeah, but so it's funny because Gene Kuhn was like of the other opinion of like, kids want to see the spaceship. So let's yeah. start with the spaceship and that'll hook them in. It's like, you know, in uh, Andy Griffith, right? You frequently have a sta an establishing shot either on the Taylor house and then you go inside and Aunt B's cooking or, you know, Andy's playing guitar or Opie's asking, you know, why is the sky blue? Or you get an establishing shot of the courthouse and then you go in there and there's Barney and Andy and they're being lawmen. That's how it works. Establishing, you know, some locations, uh, Mary Tyler Moore's house in, in the Mary Tyler Moore show, the Brady yeah. Bunch house. These become iconic locations. And anybody who tries to change them, you know, it's like they're forbidden by law from making any yeah. alterations because everyone's like, no, no, you cannot change the the Mary Tyler Moore house or the someone recently just bought the uh, uh the Brady Bunch house. Brady Bunch house and they wanted to like restore it to the way it looked in the seventies and the neighborhood was like you're going to like bring in construction vehicles, aren't you? We don't like you. Go away. <laughs> Ridiculous. Well, you know, you've probably heard too about the, the Breaking Bad house, right? In Albuquerque. There's a famous scene in the show where, you know, a pizza ends up on the top of the house. And so like for years after the show was running, people would constantly come and throw pizzas on the house. The owner had to like reach out to, you know, the, the showrunners and be like, can you throw out a statement telling people not to throw pizza on our house anymore? <laughs> so just like, also I have to question who would do that anyway. Like who's going to go to somebody's house and just throw a pizza up there. Yeah. Oh, this, has never been, this has never been done before. You know, it's like all those dumb jokes that people tell you as a server, you know, it's like, you just hear the same dumb jokes over and over again. It's awful. I prefer the new dumb jokes. Please get some new dumb jokes. That'd be fine. 
Anyway, uh, that's all I got in the behind the scenes stuff. So as always, I'm going to say let's get to it. Captain's log. Starting. It's five-year mission. So where do we begin? Are we in space looking at the Enterprise orbiting a planet? No, weirdly enough, we are on uh, we are on watching somebody uh, belly dance. So I decided, hey, why don't I look up some uh, belly dance and stuff and see wh- how far back this goes? And uh, not surprisingly, it goes back pretty far in history. Uh, I guess that's not too much of a uh, surprise. Belly dancing is believed to have a long, this is all from the Wikipedia page on belly dancing. If you didn't know there was one, now you do. Not that that's surprising. How could there not be? I was going to say, yeah, there's a page for everything. So, Belly dancing is believed to have uh, had a long history in the Middle East, but reliable evidence shows its origins is scarce, and accounts of its history are often highly speculative. Uh, several Greek and Roman sources, including uh, people, uh, describe dancers from Asia Minor and Spain using undulating movements, playing castanets, and sinking to the floor with their quivering thighs. Descriptions that are especially suggestive of the movements that are associated with today's belly dancing. We know that uh, Salome danced for the head of John the Baptist. Oh, there you go. We got a Bible reference now. Uh, though it's funny because uh, belly dancing in the Middle East has two very distinct social contexts. One is obviously as a folk or a social dance, and the other is as performance art. As a social dance, belly dancing is performed at celebrations and social gatherings by ordinary people, male and female, young and old, in just their ordinary clothes. And in uh, more conservative and traditional societies, these events are maybe gender segregated with separate parties where the men and women dance separately. Which, of course, is how it works in uh, Fiddler on the Roof. Oh, really? Till that radical... Uh, the one who marries the middle daughter starts dancing with the, his girlfriend. And then Tevia dances with his wife and all hell breaks loose. Oh, no. In the modern area, uh, professional performers, including dancers, singers, and actors, are not considered to be respectable in the Middle East. And there's a strong social stigma attached to female performers in particular since they display their bodies in public, which is considered harem. In, in uh, Islam. So there you go, a little history there. Uh, it's pretty fun. Uh, it really didn't pick up in America until the uh, like 1890s where it showed up at a world fair. This is also when uh, belly dancing got its name because uh, the, the, the people putting together the world fair did not know how to, what else to call. So they called it belly dancing. And what else would you call it? Because I mean, you can't use like some local name because right. Then it would be like we don't know what that is. What is you know blah blah blah. blah. <laughs> uh, it's also true that Thomas Alpha Edison uh, also uh, took some. He was a belly dancer. Pictures. <laughs> some what? <laughs> he, he, he was a belly dancer. <laughs> no. Nobody wanted to see that. <laughs> um. <laughs> <laughs> no, but he took some uh, moving pictures of belly dancers back Let in the day. Let me get right to the Photoshop. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if anybody wants to see that. Anyway, at the beginning, we uh, get this feeling that Scotty is inferring that this may be a brothel without ever quite saying so. And Bones goes on to tell them that, hey, this is a completely hedonistic society, so do what you want. 
and uh, she's dancing for a while. Like this dancing scene takes a uh, takes a little bit to uh, before anything else hap- happens. Scotty is just loving it, big smile on his face, enjoying every minute of it. I thought that was a pretty impressive, like uh, you know, dude in a whatever those places are where girls dance and like a strip club. Yeah, yeah, that kind of place. <laughs> No, yeah, he totally had that look on his face. Yeah, yeah. he did. It was great. Like, he's been there. He's looked around. He, he did research. That's what he did. He went, I had to go and do some research. <laughs> so uh, many other men are looking on. We see, like, people turning their heads and looking, like, right at Scotty as if, like, he's doing something crazy. But I'm like, what else is everybody else in the background doing in this episode or in this uh, place? Well, I'd imagine it would be like... Uh, Ooh, Starfleet officers at table number six. I'm also sure they're just trying to establish, uh, you know, the people who go on to become her father and fiance. Right. <laughs> it's like, oh yeah, we did see those. We did see those guys at the. Uh, since we didn't write them any dialogue, we did see those guys at the club. So the belly dancer comes off and uh, uh, the stage and joins them. Uh, the the table with Scotty Bones and Kirk. Scotty uh, quickly takes her for a walk in the fog. I don't know. That's some kind of weird metaphor I've never heard before. <laughs> they even walk up some stairs, so it looks pretty... Uh... Although we find out later they just went outside for a real walk in the fog, but who knew? Aberdeen uh, so Bone... the best fog, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah, Aberdeen. Absolutely. Bones and Kirk discuss Scotty and the need to get over his resentment towards women because of the explosion that knocked him on his head and caused him to have a concussion was caused by a woman. That's a pretty far reach uh, as far as the motive goes, but there they are establishing it there. And uh, hey, what better way to cure it than to have sex with a lovely lady, apparently. So uh, Burns and... Burns. George Burns and Kirk... Bones and Kirk uh, leave to a spot where they know that the women are something. I don't know what, but they're already in a brothel, so I don't know where where else they are talking like they need to go. But really, the script just needs them to get out of the uh, get out of the brothel. So as they're walking out, well, you figure uh, if this is a pleasure planet, right? Right. If this is the twenty third century version of Risa or whatever. There's probably clubs of every kind of where, like, it's more about the stage show. And here it's like they have dozens of girls. And over there they've got alien girls like Twi'leks. <laughs> right. And over there, they, you know, the, the girls are all like expert singers and they got a great band. And over there they got Orion Slave Girls. Yeah. So they got, they, you know, you want to hit all the clubs, right? You don't just want to go to one. <laughs> Fair. So uh, Kirk sort of like takes them off. Hey, we need to go this direction. And just as they start to go, they hear a woman scream. They run around the corner and they find that the belly dancer has been been stabbed a hundred or not a hundred. <laughs> Overdoing it uh, a dozen times. But with no blood. Yeah, well, of course not. It's 1960s television. <laughs> and there's Scotty holding the knife. Dun, dun, dun. Credits quite the teaser we come back at it star date three six one four point nine we uh meet mr hingis 
They question Scotty, but he doesn't remember anything. Kirk says, you've got to remember. Bones is basically like, uh, well, hey, let's just get him out of here. We'll take him back to the ship. To which uh, Kirk immediately responds, Bones, I have a diplomatic responsibility. That's really where he put the pause there, too. I wrote it. Uh, we find out about the concussion again and uh, that only his fingerprints are conveniently on the knife. Dun, dun, dun. Well, what's the law? Asks Bones. And then the prefect out of nowhere says, the law of Argulus is love. Well, thanks. That really clears that up. Appreciate your help there, prefect. Uh, they're joined here by the prefect and uh, his wife, who has the ancestral gift of empathic talents. Maybe she's half Betazoid or something. So this is tricky here because, of course, you know, if you're familiar with your Greek definition of love, there's like four, right? There's mm -hmm. agape and, and eros and uh, I forget the other two. A brotherly love. Uh, and then Philadelphia? Yes. Oh, and, and like familial love, right? So, of course, what we're really talking about isn't like that affection in general terms. We're talking about a particular kind of love here on Argulus. It's Eros, right? <laughs> Probably, yes. Yeah, people are not like, oh, I treat everyone like my brother. <laughs> <laughs> that would be very different, yes. So they decide, the prefect decides to take them all back to their house so that the his wife can try her empathic abilities and see if she can't uncover what's been going on here. First, we're going to try to bring down a crew member and use some science. With a psycho tricorder, question mark. Well, there's a new thing we've never heard of before, and yet here it is, the psycho tricorder. And we'll never hear of again. No, exactly. We find out, well, because already the uh, computer can already already read his thoughts up to 24 hours ago apparently it's a pretty good computer uh we and, find that the argillians want to uh doesn't have the security mechanisms to keep out intruders somehow it's a good point we find that the argillians want to uh shut down the planet to visitors there's a contingent to do kirk says it would be a shame your hospitality is well known as is our strategic placement to you. The only one in the quadrant, he says. Which is, makes no sense, because later on there are only four quadrants, as the word quadrant implies. Right? There's the alpha oh, yeah. and the beta, the gamma and the delta. So it's, it's wait, is this like the only planet in the beta quadrant? <laughs> the Klingons have no bases? or you know? <laughs> Exactly. Or maybe it's the maybe it's in the Alpha Quadrant. The Cardassians have no bases until they take Bajor, I guess. So I wrote uh, motive question mark. Is this maybe this is setting up you know somebody else to have a motor just a motor motive to set up uh, Scotty and the Federation as being bad people? No, let's close it down to visitors. So we got another motive hanging in the air. So Karen Tracy beams down and goes to the basement to get uh, her psycho tricorder set up. Bone suggests that the explosion could have caused a concussion, causing his normal behavior to change. He also suggests that it could be uh, hysterical amnesia. If he oh, feels yeah. guilty about doing something, it could block it out of his conscious memory. So we get lots of good stuff that makes us think that maybe 
maybe Scott could do it, even though he's not in his right mind. Scott is not in his right mind, so uh, and these are the reasons right here. Exactly. Sibo, the prefect's wife, uh, asks for the knife, and suddenly they can't find the knife. Then a scream. We run downstairs, and Scotty is unconscious, and Tracy is dead. Oh, my gosh. Commercial. Commercial on that note. And I write, my number one suspect here is Mr. Hingis. Really? I don't know why. I don't know why I suspected him. I was thinking that, like, I think partially because the knife was missing. Uh, he was also out of the house when the. He had left at that time. Exactly, exactly. Although we later find out that. The more obvious suspect. What's that? To go get the kind of obvious suspect, the ex boyfriend. Yes. So uh, we're back at it, and Scotty again can remember nothing. And uh, they continue to blame uh, blame what's happening on his head injury. It's convenient. Again, like I wonder if uh, if this the teaser in this could have been the explosion, right? Like you know he's oh, yeah. down there making some repairs on uh, you know engineering, and then suddenly it's like, hey, uh, Scotty's out. Blah, blah blah. Maybe that would have helped. Because you know you're kind of just hearing about this concussion secondhand. It, whenever you hear anything like that, it always feels a little forced. You know, like uh, right. oh, we're just trying to get it into the story. As opposed to like you know, Scott's working on something and and some dumb blonde comes up and go, hey, shouldn't this you know switch be turned on? Boom! <laughs> yeah, if they were Star Trek the sitcom, that's exactly <laughs> what would have happened. You didn't shatter to hold it together and make it plausible, right? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we'll get uh, Chrissy Snow to come along. And <laughs> Shouldn't this switch be like, boom? <laughs> yes, exactly. Let's get Suzanne Summers in there. It'll be great. So uh, Hingis shows up again with the suspects. Uh, one claims to know nothing about it. And then the other uh, is the uh, belly dancer's father, we find out. Oh. So then Kirk goes back to the first guy and he says... Uh, and then we find out that he's the belly dancer's fiance, but he was jealous of her. The prefect is outraged. Jealousy. Jealousy is not good in a hedonistic society like this. Obviously, you can't be jealous of somebody because, you know, they go around, they sleep with somebody else. If, if you're dating a, uh, a hooker, what do you expect is going to happen? You're going to get jealous. That's, we've seen many shows where that's happened. Exactly. We got a song about it. Exactly. We got a lovely mu musical and Moulin Rouge about it. You don't have to put on the red light. So Jairus's wife is ready. Kirk asks to seal the doors. And then they seal the doors in like this very like Bond-like way where they cut to like all the doors. Shh, 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 you know, all the doors shutting. Felt like it was even edited like a Bond film, you know, like you see him throw the switch and then it cuts to the door closing. I believe one of the doors actually had a shark tank. <laughs> Very possible. <laughs> or sharks with freaking lasers on their head. <laughs> Scotty now freaks out. Captain, he says, is my life hanging on some smoop bookie mumbo jumbo? Spock then calls down. He thinks that this empathic joining is uh, also mumbo jumbo. 
though he doesn't use those words. Uh, he suspects a better course would be to beam Scotty on board, on board and let the computers uh, at him. But Kirk <laughs> says that they are stuck following the planet's laws and traditions. Here we have. I don't the, like it any more than you do, Spock. This old sailor's problem, right? Okay. So your sailors go on shore leave in some strange land. Something happens. Whose law pertains, right? So the position of the British was always British citizen, British law, no matter where you are in the world. As opposed to, say, the French system, which said that the jurisdiction was the, you know, you're in France, you do as the French do or as the Romans do. But so we have this, we have this idea right, lurking around that, like, well, we could just, like, bring him back on the ship and he'd be tried by our own law safely with the proper protections for the innocent. So the ceremony begins. Cebu says, break not the circle. She starts to talk. Hatred of all lives. Hatred of women. An ancient name. Devouring all lights. God, I can't talk. Hmm. Devouring of all life. Then the lights go out. And Cebu screams. And when the lights come back on, Scott is holding the woman. And she slides out of his hands with a knife in her back. Finally, we see blood. Finally, we see blood on his hand. But let's take a step back. How did this even occur? Right? We know Scotty didn't do this. So, like, what happened? Like, he just stands up. And then she falls into his arms. She like his his hands like basically right with a knife. I don't know even know what happens. It's crazy. I couldn't I couldn't put it together. I couldn't make it work. So uh, now Mr. Hingis is sure that Scott did it. Scott is mostly sure that he didn't. Kirk tells Hingis and Joris that there is a uh, a computer on board that will tell whether or not Scotty did. This by his conscious or unconscious mind. There will be no room for doubt. So the prefect decides uh, it's okay if they go to the ship. But what does he got? What? But plan A was his wife will solve the mystery. Right. Oh, yeah. Good point. So he's like, well, <laughs> you got a plan B? Okay, I'll go for it. It is odd that he seems so, like, so undisturbed by the death of his wife. But other than that, We also find out that uh, no matter if it turns out that uh, it was Scott who did it, that he will be punished by Augurian law, and the punishment for death is slow torture to death. Dun dun dun! Commercial. Back at it. Kirk explains how this process works. Scott takes the stand. The computer tells us that despite the blow to the head, he should not be forgetting. He should not be forgetting anything. Scott then goes on to tell us what happened when Cebu died. The computer says that it's accurate. He's telling the truth. But Hingis still doesn't believe it. He doth protest too much, I think. Kirk tells uh, Scotty to, uh, to lie. And the computer agrees that it's a lie. Kirk asks Scotty, did you kill either of those two ladies? Scotty says he doesn't remember. The computer says that too is an accurate account. We get the psychotroic tricorder on Scotty. Marlowe takes the stand, the dead lady's fiance. I could never kill her, he says. I loved her and she loved me. But then the father stands saying, 
It's not true. She told me. She told me she didn't love you. He was uh, jealous of her all the time. Kirk then asks, did you kill Lieutenant Tracy? He says no, and the computer agrees. So it's true that I like a good courtroom drama, and this is close, but uh, you know that the father interjecting in mid-examination also feels like it's a little melodramatic to me. Uh, it's good, and I'm enjoying it, but it's not like the most perfect. It's not as good as like Court Martial was, you know, or, uh, or even The Menagerie. Sivu said that she felt a monstrous evil. And then she said those three words. What were they? They feed the first one, Rajek, into the uh, computer. So funny story about this Rajek here. I wrote this into my computer as uh, R-A-G-E-C. And I was like, Rajek, I don't know what Rajek is, blah, blah, blah. The computer ultimately tells us that it's Jack the Ripper, right? And so then I like had to stop what I was doing and get ready and go to work. And then uh, you and I were texting the next day. And uh, we were talking about, hey, when are we going to record this week? And blah, blah, blah. And you said uh, your final text to me was, Red Jack awakes, awaits. <laughs> and I was like, oh, Red Jack. Yeah, that makes so much more sense. <laughs> Red Jack, right, Red Jack. So, you know, and then it made me wonder, like, would I have figured it out eventually? Like, <laughs> at some point, would somebody have said it clearer on the episode? And I would have been like, oh, Red Jack. Oh, okay. But as it was, you were the one who, who gave it to me this week. So, <laughs> so uh, they feed Red Jack into the computer. The computer scans. They find no such word in the linguistic banks. Spock tells the computer to open up the search to other computer, computer banks. Ah, they find one. The 19th century. It's a name for Jack the Ripper. Sivu said before the ceremony, it's a hunger that never dies. But all men die, says the prefect. Kirk says, yes, all men do. Jack the Ripper can't be alive. And yet, all evidence points to Jack the Ripper. Which uh, kind of made me think of the, uh, what's that, the Sherlock Holmes line? If you eliminate uh, the impossible, whatever remains, no matter how implausible, must be the truth. I think a famous ancestor of Spock said that. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. So uh, here we are, we, you know, Kirk using that logic now to uh, say, okay, this has got to be, uh, it's got to be Jack the Ripper, but how? Although I think we haven't eliminated all other plausible things. <laughs> what? No. No, because Spock goes on to say that humans and humanoids only make up a small percentage of life that we know. <laughs> Come on, Ken, geez. Yeah, so what we're doing is we're saying, you know, there are other plausible alternatives but that's not the same as eliminating all other possibilities. <laughs> Fox says that there are entities that we know of that are already close to immortal. We know that this one, it feeds on death. Spock says, we all feed on death, even vegetarians. <laughs> it's like, okay, so you're saying plants. Cool. That made me laugh. Anyway, but it also feeds on fear. Now, Hingis here, the voice of reason technically the voice of reason here, says, oh, what, are we going to start chasing ghosts now? Kirk, ghosts. No? Non-humanoid. That's what we're going for. I only got 60 minutes to wrap this up. I don't have time to uh, knock out all my other possibilities of what it could be. Spock then asks the computer to generate a hypothesis. We hear about other species that live on love. Oh. And then they hypothesize 
uh, the form, energy, pure energy. Pure but energy. Bam, 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 bam at it. <laughs> That's right. Uh, but they said it could take a uh, solid form. So it's funny because, again, as we like to do, let's I try to do uh, extrapolate this as if like uh, this were a ongoing series as opposed to uh, episode by episode, right? So again, we in another episode have Scotty, you know, bonk his head somehow, apparently because of some woman doesn't know what she's doing. And then, you know, then we meet the species that feeds on love. Right, we meet that in right. another episode. So we already are now we're establishing that there are these non-humanoids, and so then maybe Kirk doesn't have to make that giant jump, right? Kirk doesn't have to make the leap of like, no, we can go to this other. He's like, no, we just previously met somebody who uh, feeds on love, right? Why can't they feed on fear? You know, we could we could make that a thing, you know. And so then he makes at least a logical leap because he's seen it before, as well, opposed they, to just like, well, the computer they, said they've met the Organians. What about the Organians? So they turned out to be these white glowing energy beings who took the form of these primitive people who weren't bothered by the Klingon occupation. Right, 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 I'm right. Like, what about the Organians? This is nothing. Yeah, see, so they should have just referenced them. That would at least would have, you know, made a little more sense here. Hingus continues to call them ghosts and goblins, but the prefect says that he is satisfied with where the current investigation is going and tells Hingus to sit down. Women are more easily terrified, we find out from the command crew. <sighs> the 60s. They extrapolate similar death situations in history from Actually, Earth. Actually, uh, so in the Big Five model, women score higher in neuroticism, which is an openness towards unpleasant emotions. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. You and your science. <laughs> So uh, they extrapolate similar death situations in history, and it starts a line from Earth, starting with Red Jack, all the way a straight line to Argilius, Kelsa, Baratus, other names given to unidentified killers. The last one being on Rigel 4. <gasps> they turn to Mr. Hingus. Weren't you on Rigel 4? So, funny story about this is that I had given up my uh, suspicions on Hingus at this point. <laughs> <laughs> I did, of course. Here it is revealed that he is, in fact, the killer. And I was like, oh, I thought that they were going to, like, use some scanners, you know, and, like, some some sensor readings and hunt down this villain. But, um, you know, use a phaser or something. But now the tide has turned against me. They throw accusations at Hingus. He was gone at the time of the second murder. And so was the knife. What better place to feed on fear than this planet? A true wolf in the fold, says Scotty. Ha-ha, <laughs> he said it, he said it, he said the name of the episode. <laughs> Hingus tries to play him off, trying to tell us that they are twisting words and creating something from nothing. Then they go to a scan of Exhibit A, the knife. It comes from Rigel 4. Musical sting! Hingus then tries to get away, throwing everyone around the room, but Kirk decks him, and he's dead. He's dead? He's all of a sudden dead? Then the lights start to dim. We hear a voice laughing at them. The entity we find has gone into the computer, to which Kirk reminds us, the computer controls the ship. And dun, a dun, dun. malware preventer. You're right, exactly. There's no uh, preventer. He's yeah. it. 
He's got no Norton's Utilities. He's got no McAfee. He's got nothing. No antivirus of any kind. No. I mean, like the, the Romulans ought to just, you know, why are they shooting photon torpedoes? They should be like, yeah, we've hacked the Enterprise's uh, uh, computers again. Uh, let's do the self-destruct this time. No, no, let's play with them. Let's cut off, you know, various... No, no, just go straight to the self-destruct. We come back from the commercial. Red Jack! It screams, Red Jack! And we uh, see a smoky tunnel appear on the view screen. They all look at it and say, what does this mean? Kirk says, this means it controls all parts of the ships. So I started to wonder, what is like the writer envisioning that is really on this screen? You know what I mean? I'm like, smoky tunnel? Is that what... That's proving that he has control of all the... Like, hey, I suspect... Hey, Bob, what can we put on the screen that would be like, cost us a dollar? Uh, <laughs> tunnel of smoke? All right. Mark it up. Right. See, I suspected that if this was like a Next Generation episode, we would have had like a listing of all of the, uh, you know, the ship's command yeah, functions. Yeah. And they would have gone like from green to red. Right, you know, right. that's like how we would have known like he was taking over. So then we get this uh, walk and talk with Kirk and Spock uh, heading towards the turbo lift, which is funny. He leaves everybody else in the uh, room. You'll all be safer here. Stay here. You know, where Red Jack just was, you'll be safer here. Uh, so then we get the scene where the turbo lift tries to cut Spock in half, right? But it doesn't really work because they were filming this on a uh, on a tight six-day schedule and didn't have enough time to go back in and shoot the scene with the door shutting on him. So instead, all we get is this like weird, like, oh, that just happened. Uh, apparently, uh, Red Jack's learning here how to use the computer. Just goes on. Doesn't quite have the emotional effect. You might think that if we actually saw uh, Spock almost get chopped in half by turbo lift doors. But then the turbo lift goes into free fall. And somehow they use the handles to make it stop. I don't understand. Manual braking. That's what it is. Yeah, I like that. Manual braking. Good. All right. I'm going to write that in. Manual braking. Because why wouldn't you put manual brakes in a super high-tech computer that, where the computer runs everything? Good point. Good point. On the bridge, life support uh, override is jammed. That's weird. Then Red Jack says, you're wasting your time. Kirk tries to cut the audio. But Red Jack continues taunting Kirk. Kirk then says... If you kill the ship, you'll kill yourself. But Red Jack disagrees. I am an entity. I have been around for millions of years. Spock then asks the computer to compute pi up until the last digit. Of course, we know pi has no final digit. We don't know that. We had to be explained by a little uh, explanation from Spock. <laughs> well, thank God he was there to tell us because, oh boy, I did not know that. Well, I have such nerdy friends that I know people who can like do pie up into like 12 spots. So, But this works. Red Jack screams, no, and it tangles up the computer down in the so, trial room. So why have, you know, like a McAfee, some antivirus software when all you could do is go, computer calculate pie, pie to the last decimal. And suddenly the Romulan's like, damn. Well, little did you know, 
little did you know that's where McAfee's first idea was. It's like, well, let's just lock up the computer in a cycle where the uh, virus can't take over. That's a good idea. So uh, at this point, everyone's being given uh, hypo sprays of some kind of drug that will make them not fear things. Makes them euphoric. There you go. So down in the trial room, Bones says pretty much everybody lubed up except for himself. Then Red Jack has disappeared from the computer. Kirk tells Bones to give himself a shot. At first, Bones says, uh, no, I think I should stay clear. But Kirk, worried that Red Jack could be anybody at this point, tells him to do it. He does it. But then Kirk tries to do to, uh, to uh, hypospray Joris, and Red Jack is in him. Oh, no, he tries to choke out Kirk. But luckily, Kirk, boom, knocks him out. Then Hingus's dead body all of a sudden stands up and takes a hold of a female captive. But she's so doped up, she's giggling through it. Bones even starts to walk over and says, hey, hey, hey you're going to hurt somebody with that thing. <laughs> Hingus then flees the girl at Bones, and it's a standoff. Hingus with the knife as Kirk and Spock close in on him. Kirk flips him, and then Spock does the pinch. And before they can do it, Spock uh, hypos, hypos Hingus, and he starts laughing. Kirk throws him over his shoulder, giggling and laughing the whole time, saying he's going to kill everyone. To the transporter room. So he they tells, used a drug on what was probably a dead body. <laughs> and the energy entity is high? Yes, I guess. <laughs> to the transporter room, Kirk tells us, tells Kyle, uh, deep space, maximum dispersal. And it works. Red Jack is now dead. Bones and Scotty show up, and they all still high, laughing, having a good time. And uh, then we get that funny scene of Kirk trying to get Spock down on the planet with him because uh, apparently Kirk doesn't want to do it alone. Where's the fun in that? And uh, that's it. That's the end of The Wolf in the Fold. Guess what? Wolf in the Fold came in at, uh, even though it was mostly a bottle episode with a, a few other sets, came in $9,000, seven, oops, came in $9,718 over budget. So, of course, we know their budget is the total cost of $189,000, which is their budget, is a little over uh, $1.3 million in 2013 money, which is about uh, what would be spent for a one-hour series uh you know, in 2013, using that same amount of money. So that's a lot of money that they're still giving them, and yet they still can't come in, come in under budget. The second season deficit is now increased to $122,000, which uh, is just under $900,000 in 2013 money. So, yeah, they're almost, uh, there's like three quarters of an episode basically uh, over debt. So whatever is going to happen to the show, I am so worried. Well, that's all I got in this episode. Anything else you want to talk about, sir? Anything we didn't hit? No, I think we're pretty good. We uh, wrapped up this episode pretty well. Hey, just a reminder, we're uh, starting next week on Star Trek Discovery. So for those of you who want to uh, take that path of discovery with us, then start joining us next week. Otherwise, we'll be back after Discovery is over with uh, The Changeling, which will be exciting. So there we go. Well, as always, uh, thanks for tuning in, everyone. You can find us on the Facebook. You can find us on the Instagrams. You can find us on the YouTubes every once in a while. And uh, with that, I'm Matt saying goodbye. Say goodbye, Ken. Live long and prosper. Excellent. And we will see you all next week. (laughs) 